I love using spices when I'm cooking. And Raw Spice Bar is the best way to get freshly ground spices from around the world delivered right to your door. They have a subscription membership service that offers freshly ground, small batch, recipe-ready spices and spice blends. They have several spice blends available to suit everyone's needs. Month to month is only $10. Three months, $29. Six months, $49. And for the whole year, $99. Not ready to commit? Raw Spice Bar also has spices and spice blends to purchase individually. My favorites are the Greek blend. Um, I love garlic, so the Grateful Garlic Blend is perfect for me. And then I also like the Sweet Carolina Dry Rub. That is sweet and savory, and it's just perfect for barbecuing on the grill. Start cooking new dishes every month with a Raw Spice Bar subscription. Link is in the description. Thank you so much for joining the episode today. Today's case might be one that you've already heard about, but like many people, I was intrigued from the starts. It has lust, jealousy, sex, secrets, lies, and unfortunately, death. I just want to say some details may be disturbing to some listeners, so listener discretion is advised. Travis was born on September 28, 1977, in Riverside, California. His parents were Gary and Pamela. Travis had seven siblings. He had a not-so-good upbringing. His parents were drug users, and many times when their parents were awake, the children were abused. And when their parents were passed out from doing drugs for days at a time, the children were left to fend for themselves. Many times, the only food they had was ramen noodles, or rotten, or rotting food. Travis and his siblings would spend time at their grandparents' house, and at the age of 11, Travis just refused to go home. He begged his grandparents to let him live with them, and so they did, and he moved in with his grandparents. After his father's death in July 1997, his seven siblings were also taken in by their grandparents. The grandparents clothed them and fed them and showed them a good life. They also introduced the children to the Church of Latter Day or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Travis dated but never found a serious relationship. In the Mormon faith, dating is strictly to find the person you want to marry. Basically, if you are with someone and you're just not seeing them as marriage material or you're not seeing a future with them, you would break it off. And there was definitely no sex before marriage. To my knowledge, uh, Travis stayed friends with many of his ex-girlfriends. When Travis was 29, he was five foot nine, had short dark hair and striking blue eyes. Friends described him as being happy, caring, 
outgoing, charismatic, and handsome. Travis moved to Mesa, Arizona, where he started working for a company called Prepaid Legal Services. It's a company that sells, develops, and markets prepaid legal service plans. Some people said that it's like a pyramid scheme because you can make bonuses when you recruit people and then make a commission on sales that your recruits make. But Travis made a good living from this. They would have conferences and conventions to learn how to be the best salesperson and to learn about the currents and new products. Travis was a great salesperson, and with his charismatic personality, he became a motivational speaker at some of the conventions. In September 2006, Travis attended a company convention in Las Vegas. In between speaker seminars, there was time for networking. People would be in groups during the speaker sessions, but then during the network time, they would have a chance to meet other people in other groups. Travis was chatting with someone in another group and mentioned that he liked traveling and photography. And that person told him, oh, you should meet Jody. She also likes traveling and photography too. Jody was 26 years old. She was five foot five, had a slim build, long blonde hair, and brown eyes. It was said that there was instant chemistry between Travis and Jody. They were chatting and walking to the next convention room, and by the time they arrived at that location, Travis invited Jody to a VIP dinner that evening. They saw each other when they could during the convention, and when the convention was ending, they exchanged numbers to keep in touch. Jody was born on July 9, 1980 in Salinas, California. Her parents are Bill and Sandy. She has four siblings, two brothers and two sisters. Jody had a usual upbringing, um, but things started to change when she got into her teenage years. Friends always described Jody as being a really sweet person and a great friend. But when she became a teenager and also into her adulthood, friends started noticing that she would become jealous easily. If they invited someone else to join them or if they started hanging out with new friends, Jody would become incredibly jealous and be asking why they don't want to be her friend anymore. When Jody was an adult, she lived in California. Uh, she had a waitress job and started taking interest, an interest in photography. She took pictures of landscapes and weddings, but never really made a living off of it. Jody dated, but later she went through a period. She said she went through a period of bad relationships before meeting Travis. She was kind of like a serial dater. She would go from one boyfriend to another with little time in between. She was dating someone when she met Travis, but broke it off once she met Travis and started dating him. <clears throat> she was also a relationship chameleon and would change her appearance and her interests when she was dating someone. So if the man she was dating was 
always wearing suits or reading philosophical books, she was dressing more dressy and reading philosophical books. Or if they were more outdoorsy and enjoyed hiking, like Travis, she would dress more casual and she would say that she enjoyed hiking. One time a friend mentioned that she should work for a company called Prepaid Legal Services, where she could choose her own hours um, and then work more on her photography. And there was also a convention coming up in September in Las Vegas. Jody said that when she left the conference after meeting Travis, she really wasn't expecting him to call her, but he called later that day. Jody lived in California and Travis lived in Arizona, so that's about um, 800 kilometers apart, or maybe like a 12-hour drive. So it was a long-distance relationship. They had several phone conversations and found that they were both reading a book called 1,000 Places to See Before You Die, and they made plans to visit places convenient for them to both meet in. Travis was a devout Mormon and would tell Jody of the scripture. He also had missionaries come to Jody's house to teach her about the church. And in late 2006, Jody was baptized into the church by Travis. At first, things seemed to be going well, and Travis even wrote in a journal how wonderful Jody was and said, Anyone who marries Jody will win a wife jackpot. Travis's friends and family also liked Jody, but after a few months, they kind of started to notice something just wasn't right with her. They noticed that Jody always had to be beside Travis. If he went into another room, she would follow. Even if he went into the bathroom, she would be waiting outside for him. If he texted somebody, she was continually asking who it was. One time, Travis stepped away and left his phone, and Jody immediately started looking through his phone. Another time she got logged onto his laptop and started looking through his emails. After five months as a couple, they decided to go their separate ways and ended up or ended the relationship in two thousand seven in June. A few months later Jody moved to Mesa, Arizona. To Travis's friends, it just kind of seems strange that she would move to Mesa after, um, you know, they broke up and her being there would just be trouble for Travis. Jody later said that Travis told her to move there because she would find work easier and they would be closer. But if you broke up, why would you need to be closer? Once Jody moved there, some issues started, and some people would even say red flags. Uh, she would follow Travis all the time. One time she slashed his tires because she looked at a window and saw him kissing a girl that he was dating at the time. Another time she snuck into his house through the doggy door, apparently to surprise him. Uh, one time she came to Travis with an email from someone threatening her, and she was scared. And he was telling his friends about it, and they were just baffled that he didn't realize that Jody was the one who created the email. You know, like, Travis was an intelligent guy, but when it came to Jody, he just seemed 
not that smart. Some of these things, like, he would always make up excuses for her, it seemed. Like this email, um, he was scared for her, thinking that somebody was really threatening her. And it took his friends a while to convince him that she was the one that created the email so that she could show Travis so that he would want to be close to her. Jo uh, Travis wrote in his journal that Jody was his kryptonite. On June 4, 2008, friends became concerned when they hadn't heard from Travis in a few days, which was really unlike him. He also missed a very important conference meeting earlier that day. Travis was supposed to be leaving for a prepaid legal conference in Cancun, Mexico that day. His friend Mimi was supposed to go with him. Mimi saw Travis as a friend, but Travis wanted to be more than friends, so he was hoping by inviting her to this trip to Cancun that he would be able to change her mind. His, friends and co or his friend and co-worker was already in Cancun and was texting Travis about excursions that they could do together, but he was just not getting a response back. Friends called Travis's roommates, and their roommates thought that he had already left, but Mimi explained that she was supposed to be going with him and that their flight was that night and she hadn't heard from him. A group of friends met at Travis's house, but when they knocked on the door, there was no answer from Travis or his roommates. One friend remembered the code to the garage door, um, so he opened the garage door and then he walked into and then he walked into the house uh, through the doorway in the attached garage. <clears throat> right away, he noticed a smell in the house. He also noticed that the dog had food and water, so somebody was there recently. He started to walk up the stairs to Travis's room. Um, he walked into the bedroom and then towards the hallway to the ensuite bathroom, and there was a pool of blood on the carpet. There was also a trail of blood leading into the bathroom area. And that's where he found Travis slumped in the shower. There was blood everywhere, on the floor, on the walls, in the sink. There was even a palm print on the wall in blood. He went outside and immediately called 911. On the 911 call, the dispatcher asked if Travis had any enemies, if anyone had been harassing him. And so the dispatcher spoke to a few people that were there that night, and on that call, everyone mentioned that Jody had been slashing tires and following him and giving him kind of a hard time. Once investigators arrived, they questioned the roommates, and the roommates said that they had been working um, and didn't really notice the smell at first. Um, they were all bachelors, so they just thought somebody had left food on a plate and put the plate in the sink. When investigating the bedroom, right away detectives noticed that there weren't any sheets on the bed. There were no sheets, no blankets, pillowcases. So they went looking for a washing machine, and when they found it, the machine had the bedding in it along with the camera which is really strange because what would a 
an actual full camera be doing in the washing machine? The camera didn't have any pictures on it, but it did have a memory card that was still intact. So they sent it away to see if anything could be developed. The first thing that Detective Flores thought when he, um, he saw Travis in the crime scene was that there was a major struggle. It was deeply personal. It was someone that knew him, and they wanted him dead and wanted to make sure that he was dead. Authorities later determined that Travis had been dead for at least two days. He had been stabbed 27 times. His throat had been cut from ear to ear, and he was also shot in the head. Detectives also noticed several strands of long brown hair in the bathroom. Mutual friends had called Jody to let her know that Travis's Travis had died. Within hours, Jody called Detective Flores. Jody told him that she spoke to Travis briefly a few days ago, but couldn't really talk to him because she was on her way to Utah to see a new guy that she was dating. During their conversations, Detective Flores mentioned to Jody that her name had been brought up repeatedly during the investigation. He mentioned people said she was stalking Travis. Jody admitted that they were dating but broke up in June, but they had remained intimate friends, that they would meet to have sex. She asked Detective Flores to keep her private because he was Mormon and the church frowns on that kind of behavior before marriage. Detective Flores said that it was almost like she was interviewing him, like she was asking how Travis died and what weapon was used and things like that. Uh, and Jody denied being in Arizona at the time. Detective Flores mentioned that there were fingerprints at the crime scene and asked if she would be willing to come in and be fingerprinted. Jody said that she was going to be in Arizona for Travis's memorial service, um, so she agreed to be fingerprinted by the police at that time. Computer forensic investigators analyzed the memory card of the camera, um, and they found photographs of Travis and Jody in sexually provocative pictures. And the pictures leave nothing to the imagination. The pictures were time-stamped with the date and time, which was the day of Travis's murder. The last few pictures were snapped accidentally. One shows the wall with streaks as though the camera is falling. The other shows the roof of the bathroom. And one of the last pictures shows the top of Travis's head. He's laying down and there appears to be blood running down his shoulder, and there's a foot and a pant leg standing in front of his head. It's kind of dark, but you can definitely see that it's a person's head. And, you know. Authorities later learned that the blood from the crime scene belonged to both Travis and Jody. Detective Flores and police traveled to Rairiki, California, to arrest Jody. During her interrogation, Detective Flores asked Jody to explain why she arrived 
a day late to Utah with her new to see her new boyfriend. She had been expected on June the fourth, but arrived a full day late, and phone records show that her her phone was turned off for a full day. She told him that her phone had died and that she had gotten lost on the way to Utah. The man that she was visiting in Utah told police that he did try to reach her three or four times, and each time the call had gone straight to voicemail. Detective Flores learned that about a week before the killing, a 25 caliber gun was reported stolen from Jody's grandparents' house, where Jody was living at the time. Nothing else except for the, was missing except for the gun, which was hidden from plain sight, so it was a really strange, random robbery. The caliber of the grandparents' gun matched the caliber of a bullet casing that was found on Travis's bathroom floor. As he questioned her, Jody continually denied being in Arizona that day. Eventually, Detective Flora said he knows that she was in Arizona that day, because there are pictures, and the pictures are time and date stamps. He showed Jody the graphic pictures of her. So it's pretty obvious that it's her in the pictures, and her reaction was, oh, that kind of looks like me. But she continually denied any involvement with the killing. No matter how much evidence he would tell her, she was not going to admit that she was even there. Detective Flores left the interrogation room for a little bit. And while alone in the interrogation room, Jody was talking to herself, kind of saying, oh, she should have put makeup on. She was singing to herself. She looked through the trash bin that was in the room. She did a back stretch in the chair, kind of like a sexy yoga backbend. And she did a handstand against the wall. Just kind of really weird behavior. When Detective Flores came back and told her that she was being arrested, he or she asked him if she could fix herself up before taking the mugshot. But he said no, she had to go as she was. Um, she was also smiling in her mugshot picture. The next day after spending a night in jail, Jody admitted to the investigators that she had been at Travis's home the day that he was killed. She claimed that she had arrived at Travis's at 3 in the morning. They had sex. She claimed that later on, while she was taking photographs of Travis in the shower, they were attacked by two masked intruders. At some point, Jody was knocked out, and when she regained consciousness, she heard the intruders arguing about what to do with, with her. They were saying that they were only there to kill Travis. He was supposed to be alone. Jody remembers hearing a male and a female voice. She was knocked out again, and when she came to, she said one of the masked intruders told her to leave. They said that they saw her driver's license, and she knew... They knew where she lived, and they threatened to kill her family if she mentioned the incident to anyone. So it kind of seems far-fetched. So the authorities really didn't believe her story 
and there was no sign of a break and enter at the house. Jody was charged with first-degree murder for Travis's death. Jody immediately started doing interviews, proclaiming her innocence and talking about Travis. In one interview, she said, no jury will find me guilty, I guarantee it. Jody was in prison for more than four years, awaiting her death penalty trial, which started in January 2013. Opening arguments were on January 2, 2013. Uh, a very different Jody came into the courtroom. Instead of the blonde, grand fatale, she looked more like a plain Jane, with loose clothing, dark hair, and glasses. She now claimed that Tra she killed Travis in self-defense. Travis was abusive to her and she was so scared for her life because she accidentally dropped the camera that night. Travis attacked her and she had to kill him. Jody took the stand on February 4, 2013 and she testified for 18 days. She claimed it was Travis's idea to have sex and that she didn't enjoy it because she was it was forced on her. Jody recorded phone conversations between her and Travis. One of them basically was a phone sex call, which was played in the courtroom. Which of course would have been extremely uncomfortable for his family. Uh, she said that it was Travis's idea to record phone conversations. Some things that were brought up was that Jody rented a car for her trip to Utah slash Arizona. And at first the car company, the car rental company, gave her a red car, but she said that it was too flashy and requested a white car. And that location she was at didn't even have a white car, so they had to get Jody to go pick up a white car at a different location. She also asked an ex-boyfriend to borrow a gas can for a road trip that she was going on, and then she purchased two more gas cans. She claimed it was in case that it, she ran out of gas, but really like one gas can would have been enough because there were gas stations every two hours. But again, she claimed that Java Travis told her to always have gas cans in the car when traveling. But again, three gas cans, a little much. Jody testified that she often saw pictures of young boys on Travis's computer, and one time she caught him masturbating to a picture of a boy. During the investigation, nothing involving child pornography or pornography of any kind was found on Travis's computer. She basically was trying to tarnish his character. The jury found Jody guilty of first-degree murder. On May 23, 2013, the sentencing phase began, and this is where they would decide whether Jody received the death penalty or life in prison. And that resulted in a hung jury. Um, prompting the judge to declare a mistrial for that phase. The jury had reached an 8-4 to four decision in favor of the death penalty, but it had to be a unanimous decision. Once the jury was selected for 
the sentencing phase, the new jury, sorry, deliberations began on February 12th of 2015. On March the 2nd, the jury informed Judge Stevens that they were deadlocked. Doty's attorneys requested a mistrial, but Judge Stevens denied the request. She then read additional instructions to the jury and ordered them to resume deliberations. On March the 5th, 2015, Judge Stevens declared a mistrial because the jurors were deadlocked an 11 to 1 vote. The 11 jurors later said that, oh, uh, the 11 jurors, sorry, were in favor of the death penalty and later said that the sole holdout juror was sympathetic to Jody. Sentencing was scheduled for April 7, 2015. With jurors not being able to agree on a sentence, Judge Stevens had to make the final decision to sentence Jody either to life without the possibility of parole or life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. On April 13, 2005, Jody was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. On April 2019, Jody's legal team filed an appeal. It was a 29-page ruling and a 16-page memorandum arguing that she hadn't had a fair trial for various reasons, including that the trial judge in her case failed to protect her from massive, pervasive, and prejudicial publicity during her trial. On March 24, 2020, the Arizona Appeals Court upheld the murder conviction. The prosecuting attorney in Jody's case later had misconduct complaints against him and later agreed to be disbarred. Then Jody's legal team tried to appeal the conviction based on the misconduct complaints, but the <clears throat> me, Arizona Appeals Court concluded that Jody was convicted based on her guilt despite the prosecutor's actions. So the one thing I find with guilty people is that they just don't want to admit the truth. Their story always changes. When I hear cases, that's one of the things that I think about is, has their story changed throughout the years? Um, so it went from Jody never being in Arizona to these masked intruders breaking in to Travis being abusive and she had to kill him in self-defense. I would never blame the victim of abuse. I would never want to do that, but friends and family testified that Travis was not an abusive person. Even the defense couldn't find someone to testify that he was abusive to them. With this case, I just find that there's too many coincidences or like unusual behavior, like the 25 caliber gun that went missing from the gra Jody's grandparents' house was the same caliber gun that shot Travis. And Jody got three gas cans for this trip. Like, that was odd behavior. 
she also dyed her blonde hair brown for that trip. Um, her account of what happened that night that Travis was murdered is that Travis was in the shower and she took his new camera and started taking pictures of him. And for some reason, the she accidentally dropped the camera. It slipped out of her hands. Travis aggressively came toward her. He body slammed her to the floor. She got up, ran down the hallway, and then into the walk-in closet. She grabbed Travis's gun from the top shelf. The walk-in closet had two doorways. One was in into the bedroom area and one was into the bathroom area so she grabs the gun runs out the doorway into the bathroom area all this is happening travis is you know chasing her he's in a crazy rage so she runs into the bathroom he's coming toward her like a football player she describes it as being and so she shot him and then she doesn't remember what happened after she shot him. There's a fog in her brain. The next thing that she remembers is driving to Utah. So it's just, it just seems like a lot. If he's, you know, in this crazy rage and chasing her, would she really have time to, you know, run down the hallway and into the closet and then grab the gun and, I don't know. <clears throat> Travis is Friends, family, and roommates all said that Travis never owned a gun. And that, excuse me, if he did, then one of them would have known about it. I clearly think, obviously, <laughs> that this is a case of if I can't have you, no one can. My belief is that Jody showed up that night. They took pictures. They had sex. They... You know, she started taking pictures of him, and maybe throughout the night she was, you know, let's get back together, take me to Cancun, and maybe he said no a few times. And he just kept refusing, so she killed him. If he doesn't take me back, I'm going to kill him so nobody else can have him, or so he can't date anybody else. You know, they were each other's drugs. They could not stay away from each other, and they had to keep going back. You know, they broke up, but they were having these sexual encounters. And she even said um, when she was baptized into the church by Travis that they had sexual encounters in the church before she was baptized. And there's just something about her. Like, I want, I want to, like, I want to watch her. <laughs> it's just so strange to me. I want to watch her, but I can't stand her. Like, she talks in these long sentences. Um, one interview, they asked, you know, do you, did you love Travis? Which could be, yes, I did. No, I didn't. But she's like, there's a difference between love and hate, or love and lust. And at one point, I did love him, but blah, 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 blah. And just... I don't know. To me, you know, what? why did you kill Travis, you know, all in self-defense, or he was abused? But she goes on and on, like, this drives me crazy. <laughs> but for some reason, I want to watch her. 
when I see that an interview or a show about this case is on and it's like I have to watch it but uh, but it, she just drives me crazy I don't know why <laughs> sorry um so I was reading um some of Travis's journal entries on a website because a website a few websites had some of them posted and even if he was having a bad day he would just write such positive things into that journal like he would say it was a bad day but it was better motivation for me and I know I can do better the next time you know he would write life is good the future is bright a lot of times he would say life is good life is very good so he just seemed like such a great person and it's just so sad that the world was not able to you know see what he could do Travis's friends and family say that he was a fun-loving guy who was always there for the people in his life 